Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and dapper Victorian gentlemen with secret dark sides. We are once again back to give you your weekly Weird Dose of X. I'm Jason, and as always, here is my West Coast pal, Ruben. Hello, Ruben. Hey, Jason. How's it going? I'm taking a break from uh, World Cup to record with you today. Ooh, World Cup. That's uh, in... We're supposed to say Qatar, Qatar. They keep changing the way we say that place. I'm not quite sure what's what's yeah, appropriate yeah, these days. I'll sit there and I'm not going to try. One of those little hot countries in the Middle East. I say it the right way. Okay, very well. Well, that <laughs> sounds very definitive. I'm not going to disagree. Uh, it is Thanksgiving week, so mostly what I'm taking a break from is is planning for my shopping and thawing and prepping of all that goodness. We do have one small news item to get to before we get in the actual books. We know we talked about Legion of X a couple weeks ago, and the thing going on there was Nightcrawler started growing these weird horns, and Aaron kept staring at them as if, you know, horns were a weird thing on Krakoa. Uh, well, we get a look at some character designs connected with that Sins of Sinister crossover starting in January, and kind of like Powers of X way back in the early Hickman days, we're going to be visiting timelines 10 years a hundred years and a thousand years into the future, and we get a look at the year 100 version of Nightcrawler, and that Nightcrawler looks like this hugely mutated beast with, in particular, really long horns. So is this connected to the horns we saw Kurt grow in Legion? I I guess probably it seems too coincidental to be strictly coincidental. What do you think, Ruben? Yeah, it's probably just an element of the story seeded in to pick it up when the event starts. Especially since Sai and um, Kieran and Ewing are kind of a super team at this point for storytelling. Anything that shows up in one of those books, I feel like, is probably seated for one of those other three books. Yeah, we, we do know that there is the you know the, the fabled X chat that uh, goes on, and they seem to have maybe their own little private DMs even within that. There are little you know, nice little synergy going on there. So we look forward to that coming up. And again, that story starts for real in January. But I think we get like a, a preview or a prelude issue going into it in December. So we'll be seeing what's going on with Mr. Sinister. And in fact, speaking of Mr. Sinister, we're going to see a lot more about him today because we are talking our big X book of the week is Immortal X-Men number eight, The Curious Case of Dr. Essex and Mr. Sinister, written by Kieran Gillen with art by Michelle Bandini. Now, this is at least technically a Mystique-focused issue. We don't actually get all that much about Mystique, which I think is one thing I was a little bit disappointed in here. It's clearly leading very much into Sins of Sinister, which is nice, but I would like to see Mystique have more, I don't know, agency in her own book here. Here, she's kind of subservient to Destiny. She's kind of reacting to Essex and Sinister, but she's not doing all that much on her own. What did, what, did, what was your general take for this issue? I think a lot of these immortal issues have certainly been character-driven stories, and I, I kind of share your perspective that Destiny's sort of not, actually not Destiny, uh, Mystique does not really have an independent perspective here. It's more like she's the girlfriend of Destiny. And here's why I like Destiny, which is which is fine. I, I felt like the story was interesting. Mystique used to be this amazing wild card, chaotic character who was just kind of hanging out of the fringes, right? Before Destiny came back, she was being used by the Quiet Council, being used by Charles, had the possibility of burning it all down. And ever since Destiny's back, she kind of seems like she's, I don't know, just not as not as fun anymore, kind of neutered. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing her reassert herself sometime and really take a big swing and make a, make a change in the status quo. The story itself I'm interested in. I mean, what I glam onto, shock of shocks, is all the 
you know, here's the secret origin of Nathan Essex. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess it, in a way, that's another thing that sort of overshadows the, the mystique elements of this story is I kind of forgot that it was a mystique story because I really am into the, you know, here's the first time we met. Yeah, this is kind of a elaborating on slash maybe partially retconning, maybe more than partially retconning uh, where Sinister comes from. Where Mr. Sinister actually comes from is uh, a four-issue mini from 1996 called, of all things, The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, written by Peter Milligan, an- another really good writer. And this was a time travel thing where they go back in time and they interact with Nathaniel Essex right after he kind of met up with Apocalypse. So, you know, Apocalypse is all about, you know, being survival of the fittest, best of the best. And he met up with this Nathaniel Essex guy and changed him in a way to make him the Mr. Sinister that we know today, which I haven't read that that miniseries, but that may be uh, one for a little little future recommended reading. It sounds like fun. In this issue, we revisit Alamogardo, New Mexico in 1943. Now, originally, like originally, originally 1960s Stan and Jack X-Men days, this is where Professor X's dad worked. And the implication was that exposure to radioactivity is what made the mutants into mutants. You know, everything was radioactivity then. You know, Peter Parker and the spider, Bruce Banner, the gamma bomb. Hey, it worked for those characters. So why not try it again? And, you know, that origin of the mutants never really took and it's been, you know, soft pedaled and just disappeared over the years. Uh, so about 30 years ago, Fabian Nisaiza, I'm saying that name correctly, which I'm sure I'm not. I've heard like eight different ways. He decided that there had been secret mutant genetic experiments going on behind the scenes there in Alamogordo, and he wrote about that in his Gambit book, and we also get some of that in Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy book. And this is a period when Mystique and Destiny are already a couple. They've had this like 100-year romance, but you know they spend some times apart from each other doing their own thing, and this is one of those stretches. And Mystique hears that Destiny's involved in these Alamogordo doings, and so she, she breaks in. What else are you going to do? Uh, she, I love this bit where she impersonates like a 1940s Rosie the Riveter type in these short shorts to get the drop of the military guards. That was mm-hmm. a cool scene. That's really my favorite Mystique bit in this issue. And then she sneaks in to have a chat with Irene about, you know, what are you doing doing this nasty anti-mutant stuff? And Irene is, of course, not surprised to see Mystique, the whole, you know, see in the future bit. And she says that Amanda Muller and a Dr. Milbury are doing some some bad stuff for sure, but that eventually it's all going to work out for the best. Now, Amanda Muller is another Nisaiza and Carrie character, and Dr. Milbury is the name that Sinister is working under. It's actually his wife's maiden name. So he's he's not really that deep undercover. It's pretty obvious. And Mystique says something here about being confused about how Sinister came back after dying the first time. And well, we don't think, at this point, we don't know what first time that was. We're going to flashback to a flashback from the flashback to find out about that. So what, what did you think of this uh, New Mexico period of the book? It's interesting, mostly because uh, Mystique is questioning why Destiny is willing to participate in experimentation on mutants. But it's a lot of it's a lot of dialogue with not a lot going on from my perspective. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, isn't it neat to revisit this time in the their history? And I did my research and I found this stuff from some old books. But I don't know that we really needed it even for this story, right? We could have gone right back to London and maybe had something in the in the present day because we have no scenes at all in the present for Cohen Day in this whole issue. We don't see how the Quiet Council's reacting to the end of Judgment Day. We don't see how any of this Mr. Sinister stuff is playing out in the current day. It's all 1940s and then 1890s. It, I mean, it's somewhat interesting and fun 
when you go through the history of like, hey, these are scenes from past stories and this is Garen saying, hey, I read the stories too and I'm going to loop it into my story. But as you say, like there's nothing essential about revisiting what happened at this time. Like I, It, it was fun is, doing the research and I'm looking forward to reading some of those old stories, but I don't know. I mean, maybe some of them turn out to be super duper important going forward, but for this issue, it just kind of felt like, well, like I would have liked to see that something else happened there. But, you know, the I, w- I want this, this story to be a different story is never the greatest kind of criticism, but that's kind of where I'm at. It's six pages. And to your point, we could have just had one page where it's like, hey, what about the first time Sinister died? And then give us five other pages of substance. It, it actually, this, maybe this is why what he put in to have Mystique actually do some action scenes, show off her, her mutant abilities, that kind of thing. And again, I, again, I enjoyed that, th- those few panels a lot. So now we go back again to London, 1895, and and Gillen's having a blast here with the Victorian fiction tropes. We have Mystique and Destiny playing Holmes and Watson, with Mystique making herself look you know, exactly like the famous uh, detective. They're even at the same address, 221B Baker Street. And it's kind of a twist because Holmes and Watson, their roles are kind of reversed here because we know that Destiny is really the brains behind this. And, and uh, Mystique is really more the, the action character, which is backwards from who they're portraying in this. And it's also kind of neat because Destiny's name in X-Men is Irene Adler. And Chris Claremont just flat out stole that name from a Sherlock Holmes story itself. Irene Adler appeared in a story called The Scandal in Bohemia, which in the real world was written in 1891, just four years before the events in the story. So that's a, a thing that, you know, Gieran's Gillen, Gieran, Kieran Gillen's winking at us about. We get those references. We get the a lot of Jekyll and Hyde references, including the title. We get a little sideways reference to Jack the Ripper. So you can tell that he's just really leaning into all the tropes of like late Victorian London. Yeah. And I think, you know, Raven or Mystique's name is Raven Darkholm, right? And so I think they're trying to say here that like, oh, well, she actually was um, Sherlock Holmes or an inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. I, I think that's the implication. Yes. That uh, we don't see them actually bumping into Conan Doyle and him writing down their stories. But that's that, that's kind of like we're supposed to think. So the the case that uh, this version of Holmes and Watson get has to do with a gentleman found beaten, confused, and stripped of clothes. Now that that sounds like just fraternity initiation to me, but Mystique and Destiny go investigate, and the gentleman is of course Nathaniel Essex, owner of an estate called Millbury House. There's the Millbury again, and this is Nathaniel Essex right after he met Apocalypse, where Apocalypse did his hoodoo to make him into Mister Sinister. I'm not sure that this current story is a hundred percent compatible with a past story because I think by 1895 he was supposed to be kind of full out Mr. Sinister where here he's kind of flipping back and forth between this kind of semi-mild-mannered Nathaniel Essex and this murderous Hulk of a Mr. Sinister. But again, it's fun and retcons happen so we can go with this. For me on this point is we get a little bit more about what Sinister's agenda is and he seems very anti-technology you know, basically forecasting that there will be some point in the future when mankind destroys itself by creating intelligent machines that in them, you know, in their own capacity, create more intelligent machines. 
Yeah, that that was really neat. So the way they get to that is Mystique makes herself look like a vulnerable maiden wandering the streets of London. She doesn't actually get like attacked like she I think that's her plan is to have whoever this bad guy is attacking. But he just she just hears a scream, she runs off and finds this naked Mr. Hyde version of Sinister, you know, killing a dude. She shoots him in the head, it doesn't work, and then they kind of get led on a chase back to Millbury House, I guess, and where she and Destiny find Sinister already turning back into the sickly Dr. Jekyll version, Nathaniel Essex. And and that's where he starts talking about this technology stuff. He calls uh, mutants, he has his own name for them, he calls them Essex men, which I'm not sure if that's a new joke or an old joke, but either way, I, I appreciated it. You know, they're not X-Men, they're Essex men because he's Nathaniel Essex and he wants to name things about himself. Uh, and he talks about being worried about the future and another kind of clever bit, he says, I'm worried about Charles's monsters. Now, Mystique and Destiny think he means Charles Darwin. And as readers, of course, we're going to think about Charles Xavier. But what he is really referring to is Charles Babbage, who is this very early, you know, computing machine uh, theoretician and engineer. And it ties in very naturally with this is kind of why Mr. Sinister might join up with the mutants in the future to stave off these AIs. He's he's really worried about these thinking machines, you know, taking over and and pushing humans and Essex men slash mutants off to the side. So that is kind of cool. And very timely with where we're at in our own world and, you know, the crux of society. I think this is a fear that a lot of people have that machines will be dramatically changing society and potentially destroying society. Yeah, we do hear about that with your various algorithms and they're even, you know, doing art now and, you know, artists are worried about losing business because somebody can just tell three words to a computer and get their whole style ripped off. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a very current kind of a fear. So he just kind of then collapses into a wreck. He is guilty of these murders. So he gets taken off to, to Bedlam, again, a, a famous Victorian insane asylum. And he dies there babbling about red and black, red and black. And his last words are, you're a ghost. Now, the red and black, of course, are the, the card suits. And I, do you know what the you're a ghost bit was referring to? Is that just supposed to be mysterious for now? Yeah, I think it's definitely mysterious at the moment. Because we see a close-up of his face. We don't see what's around him. We don't see if anyone else is actually there. We just see he's terrified, and then it cuts to him you know, being dead. And then we end by seeing Destiny by herself revisit Essex's house, Mystique not with her. She plays back this old phonograph recording he makes where he talks about the only way for him to be immortal, the only solution to his predicament is, quote, survival of the fittest. And then down in the basement, Destiny sees these four broken, empty, human-sized tanks. And of course, they're bearing the symbols of a diamond, a club, a heart, and a spade. So Destiny has this early knowledge of the Mr. Sinister four-pack, even outside of her powers. Now, did she share that knowledge with anybody, even Mystique? No, I don't think it, so. It doesn't seem like it, no. I wish I knew, like, is this um, card suit a more modern invention or historic invention? I don't remember this in the in the 90s when I was first reading X-Men. Oh, I'm pretty sure this of, is a brand new retcon, yeah. Yeah, and so I think this may be the first time they've actually flushed it out. We saw the, the spade for, or I guess club, we saw the club version of... Um, Nathan Essex earlier in, I think, was it X-Men? Um, when we had Dr. Yeah, working with Orcus. Yeah, whatever his name was. Uh, in, in any event, um, I think at that point we were we were saying like, well, is this a card theme? 
or is this just a different look? And apparently, it is a card theme. Yeah, I, I think that originally it just well, that's a, a cool look to put a diamond on somebody's forehead. I think the idea that there's card suits and there's four of them is 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 branding new. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, it sort of does explain a little bit about what the other. And I wish I could recall again. This is my brain not working. <laughs> what the other Dr. one was Stasis. going by. Thank you, Doctor Stasis. Stasis. Yes. Now, now I guess we could say like this is why Doctor Stasis says he's more of an original because probably the clone that he is is not you know as replicating as the diamond ones hmm. are. Well, I think the implication is that none of them are original, right? That the original died back in 1895 and that Correct. they're all yes, just the copies. Very, very original Nathan Eskis is dead and the others are all clones. But of the clones, the the club one may be more, you know, senior than... Lower generation clone? Yes, yeah. And the diamond ones, I mean, are the ones that... We saw like, in, in House of X that there were just tons of diamond versions. Yeah, and they bred into the you know, adding mutant, mutant genes into their DNA that leaves us to, you know, question who's the heart and who's the spade. And I think your observation about um, that guy in space and Orbis the Orb- Stellaris or yeah, Orbis Stellaris is probably one of them. I think that that theory is really kind of panning out. Um, and then I guess that'll leave us with one unknown. Yeah. The, the other uh, name I've seen being thrown around a lot. I don't know if I buy it, but I'm seeing it thrown around is uh, mother righteous. Is she going to be oh, a, a sinister? She seems I don't so think different. So. To him. Yeah, I think she's very different. That's an interesting thought, but in certain ways, she's very different. But yeah, it, well, I don't think she has a pattern on her head, does she? I think her head is usually covered up. I don't know if we've ever actually seen her her bare naked forehead. We'll have to have to okay, effort. Now that. I'm have to look back and actually, <laughs> this is going to drive me crazy because it's probably the right theory. That'd be interesting. But I like it. I mean, that's cool. That's a um, unexpected turn of events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this issue is not labeled as being a prelude to Sins of Sinister, but it it, it really is. It is, yeah. <laughs> Again, I say I don't like this issue as, as much as I like most of the rest of the series for all the reasons we talked through. Uh, but, you know, even a down issue of Immortal is better than most other books on their you know average or even a good day. Yeah, I agree. There's interesting stuff that happened here. And I'm talking to you about this. Like, there's some cool stuff that I'm now looking forward to that I didn't totally dial into the first time i read it but yeah it's not it's not there wasn't anything that was like holy crap which is frequently what my reaction is after reading immortal it it sets a high bar i think the michelle bandini art here is is quite good a nice balance of the 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 personal facial expressions and the the action moments he makes a nice distinction between those jekyll and hyde sides of mr essexer's Mr. Sinister's, Nathaniel Essex's personality, and again, that disguised version of Mystique in the 1940s, that looks fantastic. It looks like she could have come right off like the nose cone of a, a bomber in World War II. It looks great. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah overall, is great. Seven overall, five for I'm going to give this like a 7.8 out of 10. Yeah, we're, we're, we're similar. I think it's a, a good issue, but boy, uh, Kieran Gillen has given us some really fantastic issues and hoping that this is just setting us up for uh, a knockout down the road. Now, now, speaking of some past issues of Immortal, before we go on, I want to remind folks of something they may have forgotten. Back in issue number one of Immortal, we you know didn't talk about that in this podcast because we weren't around yet, uh, we had a whole page worth of Sinister Secrets, and we had them labeled 1 to 13 plus. So 1 to 12 and then 13 plus. And so far, it's been a, a perfect one-to-one match between every issue of Immortal matching up with the next numbered Sinister Secret in that list. So for this issue, uh, it's number eight. The Sinister Secret is, acting like being immortal is a new thing is very gauche. 
Some of us have been rocking the look for a while, and trust me, we have had all manner of adventures. Now, of course, this is a reference to Nathaniel Essex himself becoming immortal, sort of, in this issue by splitting himself into like these four different pieces. So that matches there. So naturally, the next question is, what's number nine? It says, look on the bright side. The council chamber being white means it's easy to see where you have to mop up the bloodstains. So that is quite a little uh, preview of what's up next time. I like the fact that this basically just says, hey, I had a story that was planned at least for 12 issues. So yeah, it's it's good for me to to know. I guess, hey, look, a story that is tightly, you know, well-written and, and kind of a tight narrative is, is you know, something that's planned out, not just kind of issue to issue, which I feel like that's what a lot of the writers are doing. Does give you some confidence that he's going somewhere. So just, just to throw out the next couple. So number 10 says, finally, someone who actually deserves it gets thrown in the pit. Good riddance. That, that sounds like fun. 11 just says simply, oh no. And then 12, we have help. Just help me. It stretches on, endless and cold. Infinity balloons and a scream is too big for my head. This is a hell of my own making. Hell is other people. Hell is also me. Now, I don't know if these next two are referring to the Sins of Sinister event itself. I mean, number 12 sure sounds like hell is other people. Hell is of my own making. Hell is also me. That sounds like Sins of Sinister, but we were told that Immortal is going to go on hiatus. It'll be going to become Immoral X-Men for a while and then come back. So I'm not sure if these are referring to the Immoral X-Men books that happen as part of the tie-in or if this is referring to what happens after. Either way, it sounds like fun. And then all we get for 13 plus, and it says 13 and a plus sign is everything is fine. So as far as previews goes, that certainly has me curious what's coming up. Uh, anything else we want to add about Immortal X-Men numbers eight? I think that's the book. That was our big X book of the week. Onward, we'll spend a few minutes talking about a very different kind of book. This is Sabretooth and the Exiles, number one, written by Victor Laval and art by Leonard Kirk. Now, Ruben, did, did you read the original Sabretooth miniseries by uh, Victor Laval? I did. And a lot of people were really raving about it. I think I previewed this on the last um, recording we did. I enjoyed the themes and the high level stories, but I struggled with the characters and caring about them. And I think I was most excited by where this was going to go after Sabretooth escaped the pit. And um, they kind of, you know, came to the conclusion that maybe we shouldn't be throwing people in Krakoa going forward. And then he just kind of went off, right? And it was foreshadowed that he was going to develop a society that was, you know, adverse to Krakoa um, for mutants that didn't want to be part of Krakoa. Yeah, what, what I liked about it, it, it really felt like it had a purpose. It wasn't just, let's wander here for a while. So I like books that have a purpose. And he put together a, a, a wacky team of some, you know, minor characters that have been in the background plus one brand new character he created. And, and this is, uh, he's a, a, a novelist. He hasn't written comics before, as far as I can tell, more of a science fiction fantasy guy. And it's really a lot about the subtext not being very far under the surface. Maybe a, a little less subtle than I'd like it. It's very much he wants to critique the, you know, the prison system. So where to use that? But uh, of course, go to Sabretooth. And then he has other people also sent to the pit for other not as good reasons. And he has a, a lot of commentary about, so, you know, what do we do with these people who do bad things, but, you know, maybe for understandable reasons. And what, what bugged me about this is it never really felt like it was actually happening in the same world as the rest of the books. It might be a me problem, but it, it almost felt kind of like really high quality fan fiction 
I never got the idea that, oh, these crazy things are happening. Like, like for instance, Sabretooth in, in the miniseries is manifesting himself above in the, the, the surface of Krakoa. He could like make himself be seen. These other characters could make themselves be seen and kind of put out some, some subversive ideas. And it really felt like if this was going on, this should be showing up in all the other books. And the fact that it wasn't made me think like this, this isn't real. I mean, none of it's real. real. Yeah, that's a really fair critique. He needs to find a super group to have some of his ideas seeded, right? Because I think you're right. He basically sort of changed the rules of how the pit worked. And then they were pretty dramatic and significant changes where you'd think that some of this stuff would show up elsewhere. And then the, these other characters who we know when the other books got sent to the pit, pit we saw like uh, Toad in X, wasn't X Factor, it was uh, Trials Magneto, and then Nanny and Orphan Maker at the end of Hellions. They showed up in the very, very last issue of, of uh, Sabretooth, and it almost felt like somebody finally noticed, oh, there's something else going on, we have to have to make that connection. So yeah, that he has exactly some cool ideas. He has some cool ideas, but I, I really want to see this mean something in the other books. And until it does, I mean, nothing happened in the Lavalverse tying in with Judgment Day. Nothing in this miniseries, as far as I can tell, is going to tie in with the Sins of Sinister. It really feels like it's way, way, way off on the side. And if this stuff is really happening, it should be part of the central story of what's going on on Krakoa. Even with this like side story of Orcus, right? And they just throw in these like other Orcus characters. I'm like, these aren't the ones we really follow and know about in the main story. It makes you wonder, like, is this even the same Orcus? I mean, I understand it's like a huge organization and there's going to be sub factions, but it's sort of like somebody told him the name, but didn't tell him or give him authority to write anything with Nimrod or anything like that. So where we left off plot wise at the end of the last miniseries, uh, so Sabretooth convinced these other people down in the pit to kind of help him with his plan to escape. And he claimed that they were all going to escape together. But of course, he's Sabretooth. He just kind of used them and he took off on his own. And now Doug and Krakoa were kind of in on making things nicer for all the prisoners all along. So Doug feels kind of guilty. And he and Krakoa let the others out, too, and charges them with the task of going and catching Sabretooth. He gives them this kind of skull seed-looking thing that will, we don't know what, they'll do something bad to Sabretooth if they kind of throw it down on the ground at his feet. And at the very, very end of that book, it felt like like halfway through writing that final issue, they got the go-ahead to do a sequel, and they had to throw in this bit where Sabretooth, out on this stolen boat, gets picked up by an Orcus for-profit prison. As if Orcus is a profit-making business? I, again, it's a different Orcus, a lot of subtext. And so this book starts off with this character called Dr. Barrington, who's now working for Orcus. Uh, she doesn't seem to have a first name, just a first initial of B we see on a data page. And she's a fairly new character. She was created in the Ed Brisson New Mutants run, kind of back in the early days of Krakoa. It, the Nova Roma bit where she was attacking Nova Roma. And she was last seen working for the U-Men in the Children of the Atom miniseries, which I'm sure we all remember. She's your basic amoral scientist type. She'll go to whatever crazy rich organization will let her do whatever crazy science experiment she wants to do. And I like the U-Men. They're a Morrison creation. They're pretty grisly. Basically humans that really want the powers of mutants. And so they organ harvest them and try to merge them with their own bodies so that they can collect these powers. So she's basically using Orcus for their technology and their resources. And she's trying to give her her partner, this guy named Kruger, some kind of crazy superpowers, but something keeps going wrong with the liver. 
I don't know why the liver, I can't figure out, is there a, a reason why the liver is the thing, but it's definitely a liver problem. And she happens to be in charge of this floating UFO prison that picked up Sabretooth. And she thinks, hey, this guy has this crazy healing factor. Maybe I can just grab his liver, shove it in my partner, and maybe that'll fix everything. Hey, it's comic book science. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. My issue here, and I think this is going to hit back again to what you say, it just feels like fan fiction. You would think X-Force would have caught wind of a UFO prison. And this isn't even just like the one, right? That's like oh, yeah. or anything. This is like- There's six of them. There's six of them. I'm like, seriously, this hasn't been dealt with by Beast. I mean, as much as I hate the current idea of Beast, it's like he's- He would know. He knows everything and he's like intervening with like the smallest little infraction, right? Involving mutants. So that's one thing that just drives me nuts. I'm like, okay, it's cool. It's a it's a pretty intense thing, but hard to square it with the rest of the universe. Yeah. So the rest of our exiles out sent out to hunt down Sabretooth. Uh, they land on this island where there's this, again there's a huge pit full of dead mutants that have been used by uh, Barrington in her experiments. And again, if somebody was harvesting and killing all these mutants, you'd think that that beast would be involved, but th they're not. So I don't know where they're coming from. Are they coming from Russia? Are they coming from another one of these not playing nice with the Krakoa countries? Very unclear. So at this point, Barrington's floating UFO comes back to the island and the exiles get ready to fight. So Barrington's experiment worked. Her partner Kruger with the, the, the liver of, of Sabretooth is awake and superpowered, and he has all the superpowers. He has strength, flight, eye beams, poisonous breath, and to me, he looks a lot like the Sentry. He's, just, again, one of these Superman analogs who's just is, he's super everything. Yeah, what's interesting to me is in the um, X-Men Unlimited on um, the app, you know, the web-only comics, they already had a story where there's this character that was a prison guard that got all of the powers of all the mutants. And so that's another thing that kind of irks me about this. Was I'm that like, one of the Deadpool ones? Yeah, exactly. Yep. I remember being so I'm yeah. like, dude, did you just rip off this webcomic story for your Sabretooth plot? Because <laughs> you didn't think anybody read it? it. It's just a little, it's a little too similar for my for my liking. I mean, it is a pretty basic idea. Grab all the all the all the powers, cram them into one dude. So, you know, it people could come up with that. Yeah. No, I yeah, exactly. Well, I'm not saying it's plagiarism or anything like that. It's just it's really, kind of basic. It's just a it's a super generic story. And if you're this, you know, new writer that's trying to break into comics and it seems like they really want to like say here's some new characters and here's my mark, right? Like make a big deal. And then their first, you know, new villain is oh, just a super generic carbon copy of something we've even seen like within the last six months. Yep. So this battle goes on. Our exiles are not doing very well against uh, this guy's called the creation. And meanwhile, Sabretooth busts out of his prison inside the UFO because he's good at busting out of prison. And he starts kind of wrecking house inside there. So we have things going poorly for Orcus inside, going well for Orcus outside. So Barrington gets rescued by the creation. Creation also grabs Orphan Maker and they kind of fly off. Meanwhile, Sabretooth gets his ship back and he offers to team up with the rest of the exiles again to go and rescue Orphan Maker or at least stop his suit from being opened up, which could make the world end. Again, there's, I really want to know what's going on with Orphan Maker, but we're not, I, I don't get the feeling we'll ever find out in this book because this book is so far off to the side. They're never going to say, oh, actually, yeah, the world ends because of Orphan Maker's suit opening in this tertiary book. Yeah, and it's tough because this is one of those plots that was dangling from Hellions and then just in general, you know, from the 90s. They've never explained what was up with Orphan Maker and what made him a mutant and, you know, what powers he had. We had hints 
in Hellions that like he's in the suit to protect us from him, which is cool. Um, but yeah, this <laughs> it made me a little sad to see that like this is where they're going to try to deal with it a little bit because I just don't like you say it's not going to be anything. Uh, and then the other thing that kind of irks me is here when you know we see the team, the first shot of the team, and 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 again I don't know who these characters are. Like they're yelling "Exiles Arisen." I'm like, did they? When did they get this team name? <laughs> like, yeah, it, it's it's going for the to me my X Men Avengers yeah. assemble. It, he's again, he's trying to say, hey, look, I read comics. I'm kind of making fun of comics, and it just it it doesn't feel like someone. You know, if there's someone inside your group making inside jokes about your group, that's one thing. This feels like an outsider making fun of the X-Men, which is, is, is not so not as much fun. This is unfair, maybe, right? Like they can write whatever story they want to write. But I I really would have appreciated if they had focused more on trying to get us to know who this team is and these characters. Um, you know, I, I see I, I see Toad, I see Nanny, and I see Orphan Maker. I know those characters, but and I know the others were in the Sabretooth Mini, and they probably predate that, but I, I really don't know these characters. And I'm not, you know, the the brainiest X-Men fan, but I feel like I've got a decent, you know, grasp of most of the main characters. These are not the main characters. Like you really needed to at least give us an issue or two. Um, unless you're assuming the only people reading this read I can't imagine someone jumping into this and not having read Sabretooth. Because this again, this is Sabretooth was itself kind of a a very much on the side book, and this is a sequel to that. So yeah, definitely do not jump in and and read this without having at least flipped through on you know the app the the back issues of the original Sabretooth. And I, I think Laval, one of Laval's themes is that minor characters don't get enough attention. It's like regular people don't get enough attention. They all the the high and mighty are the ones who who run everything. So I think that's intentional. But again, I, I'd like to feel more for these characters. I do like the bit where uh, Orphan Maker thinks that Melter is uh, is uh, who do you think he is? <laughs> Not Iceman. <laughs> he thinks he's uh, the, yeah. the fiery guy from the uh, Fantastic Four, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Storm. Yeah, Johnny Storm. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's kind of funny. There's some clever stuff, and I liked when Nanny and Orphan Maker were like, "I'm not getting off on you know exploring this mysterious evil island, right? Like, what's in it for me? Why would I do that?" There were there were a few moments that were clever in here. There was a lot also that just felt weird. I I, I think people will probably figure this out about me. I don't love like gore and torture and body horror type stuff. So the like evil minions kind of cracking jokes about I guess being disemboweled like repeatedly and then finally they are by Sabretooth like it just that I didn't find it clever or humorous or like it didn't make me dislike the characters it just felt like inappropriate humor that you know was just awkwardly inappropriate not funny or anger inducing so I I don't know I mean maybe maybe this writer's just not for me I'll stick with it because you know I'm going to try to keep up with most of the stories and I don't hate this, right? Like this does feel a little bit more accessible to me than there's a a difference. Sometimes I don't like a book and I say, okay, I can see why other people would like this book. It's just not where I want my reading to go. And then that's what happens here. Other times I read a book and I think, yeah, this is, this is just a crappy book. This is not a crappy book. This is just a book kind of going off on its own and telling a story in a way that doesn't really match what I'm interested in. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a bus to a part of town. I just don't don't want to go to. Yeah, I do and think I the art is really good. I want to give a lot of credit to uh, uh, Leonard Kirk. We get these kind of 
again, these characters we don't know too much about. He does make them look very individual and give them personality. There's not a whole lot he can do with yet another Superman analog, so he looks kind of generic. But I love the way he, he draws tech, this crazy tech inside the uh, the Orcus UFO. It looks looks pretty cool. There's even a bit of technology that uh, they put inside of Sabretooth, some sort of a, a tracking, monitoring thing that does look like a very much like a tiny bit of Kirby tech, and I appreciated that. So it, there was some good stuff involved. And I'm interested in seeing Sabretooth eventually trying to take revenge on the people that put him in the pit. I mean, he's one guy that holds that a grudge, would be right? an awesome story. And again, if, if this starts to look like it matters to the rest of the line, I will immediately be a hundred times more interested in it. But until then, it just kind of feels like I, I don't think anything's actually going to happen here because it doesn't feel like it matters. So I'm going to wrap this up with just, yeah, it's it's a seven out of 10. It's an okay book. It's, it's, not, it's never going to be my favorite. Seven's fair. I mean, as a personal reaction, I'm just going to give it a six, five because I kind of am on the don't like side of it but it's yeah it's it's good i guess it's good enough (laughs) somebody loves this i'm sure okay speaking of good enough that's all we have to say about the two issues we're talking about this week and we hope you find our podcast good enough and if you do please follow (laughs) us on twitter which as 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 of this recording still seems to be a thing Uh, we are at ws marvel comics check out our website that includes lots of reviews of other marvel books and other things at weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com. Uh, coming up next week, we have two X-Men related books coming up. We have X-Men number 17, where I presume we'll be returning to Forge inside the vault where we left off. He had just found a living Laura Kinney, which is a big uh-oh because they already resurrected Laura Kinney outside the vault. So we'll see what happens there. And then we have X-Force number 34, which I don't really know where this is going because the previous issue of X-Force capped off that Craven the Hunter crossover tie and arc to Judgment Day. So I don't know if this will have anything to do with the Beast story that's going on in Wolverine or if it's going to be its own brand new thing. So does that sound pretty exciting there, Ruben? I'm very excited about X-Men, shockingly. <laughs> Not shockingly, right? Um, you know you're a vault guy. Yes, yeah. And, uh, man, I guess I'm excited about X-Force because of what we saw in Wolverine, you know, and I think I was really slamming Ben Percy um, for writing an issue and just that totally assassinates Beast's character. But I want to know what's going on. So I guess maybe I should... I do hope it's connected. It would be kind of a letdown to just see Beast kind of going on doing his thing. Will Wolverine be part of what's happening in X-Force? Will it be the crazy or the controlled Wolverine we see in Wolverine? Or will it be regular old Wolverine and we have to play the game? Oh, does this happen before or after? There's there's a lot of questions, I guess. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm looking forward to opening that issue and seeing what are we getting here. That's something to look forward to. I want to see Wolverine. That I don't think I would ever have said that. <laughs> so maybe maybe I need to say Ben Percy is an amazing writer because he's got me wanting to know what's going on with Wolverine. If he doesn't, I'm going to be pissed. Well, whether we're excited or pissed or just kind of disappointed, you will absolutely hear about that next week. Uh, until then, you all keep reading X-Men comics. Happy Thanksgiving, and we will see you next time. Bye.